The following sermon is brought to you by Capital Community Church, located in Raleigh, North Carolina. Capital Community Church is a people awakened to a holy God. If you are searching for a new church home, or from out of town looking for a church to worship with, or simply seeking for answers, please join us for worship at 1045 a.m. every Sunday morning and 6 o'clock p.m. for our evening service. If you have any questions, please email us at info at We pray this sermon will help you grow deeper in your walk with Jesus Christ. I invite you to open your Bibles to John 11. We're going to begin in verse 45. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and it had seen what he did, believed in him. But some, some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim. And there he stayed with the disciples. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think, that he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. What's, I think, interesting about this this whole aftermath of Jesus's raising of Lazarus is what is missing. This is the greatest miracle outside of the resurrection of Jesus Christ that's performed in Scripture. The raising of Lazarus is, as John points it, the seventh and ultimate miracle in the Gospel of John. And I think it's the ultimate miracle that Jesus performs throughout his entire earthly ministry. Here we're talking about a guy who's been in the tomb for four days. And Jesus raises him from the dead. Look, look back up just, just very briefly at verse 43. When he had said these things, he, Jesus, cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Do you see what's missing in the aftermath here? If you were on scene, what's the question that you have? I'm going to Lazarus and I'm asking, what's it like to be dead? 
I mean, we have all these books, you know, 60 minutes in heaven, an hour and 20 minutes in hell with the devil, of all these people who have no idea what they're talking about. And the one guy who's actually been raised from the dead for four days, there's no account of what he saw. I'm going, what's it like to go to Hades? What was it like to all of a sudden, I mean, can you imagine to wake up in that tomb and to sit up and just be bound with this cloth and this linen and then to walk out and your family and your friends are there waiting for you and you look like a Halloween costume? I mean, this is unbelievable. But you don't see any mention of the thoughts of Lazarus. None. Nor do you hear anything. I mean, I'm wanting to know, Mary and Martha, what do you think? And it's almost like John just protects the family. He doesn't say anything about what they think. And of course, we know if you, if you read chapter 12, Mary is the one who anoints Jesus' feet with perfume before the crucifixion. So obviously, she felt a deep sense of gratitude. And if you look at verse 40 of John chapter 11, Jesus said in the aftermath, to the family. He said, you will see my glory. So we know that they saw his glory and exalted in his glory. But we really don't know any of these personal insights that you want to to see and understand. Now, here's what's interesting. Here's what's interesting. If I'm at the tomb and I see a guy who's been dead come out for four days at the command of a man, what do you think the response is going to be? What do you think? I'm thinking, okay, we have our next world leader, right? We're, we're going to go on a tour with this guy. The world will believe in him when they know what he's done. I mean, this is the most remarkable thing that anybody has ever done. This guy has the power over death itself. I mean, before long, Caesar's going to want him in Rome to rule because this guy has raw spiritual power. You would think that's the response, right? But here's what's interesting. Look, look at the response of those who are there. Look at verse 45. Th- this is the response that you would expect. Many of the Jews, therefore, talking about the friends of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, the Jews from Jerusalem, these are the high distinguished people who had been there grieving with them. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. That's what you would expect, right? Almost. Notice that word, many. What's interesting about that word? It's not all. I mean, come on. You, you see a guy raised from the dead? It should be, you would think, all the people who saw it believed in him. But no. Many. Many. There were some who didn't believe. Think about that for a second. There were some who didn't believe saw a man come out of the tomb, and yet they refused to believe. Do you experience that in your own evangelism? You might be a great evangelist, like my father-in-law. Many believe when he presents the gospel. But there's some who don't. There's some who don't. Look what they do. Verse 46. 
But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So they, these are the ones who don't believe. And they go to the spiritual authorities and, and they say, you need to know what Jesus did because it's not going to work out well for you. That's essentially their message. Did y'all have the saying, tattletale, growing up? You know what a tattletale is? My mom taught me, literally, one time, I, I, I guess I told on somebody, and she made a tiger tail and attached it to string and made me wear it all day, that I would learn my lesson of being a tattletale. These guys are spiritual tattletales. They never were taught their lesson. And they go to these leaders and they tell them, look, Jesus has done this miracle and it's indisputable. It's incontrovertible. You can't debate it. Remember the religious leaders had seen in John chapter 9, uh, the man born blind, and they'd interviewed his parents, and they'd interviewed people, and they were, is this really true? They can't debate this because all these people have seen this man raised from the dead. You can't debate this. So take a step back and think about this for a second because this is important. Spiritually speaking, how could this happen? How do you have a group of witnesses to the resurrection of Lazarus act with complete hypocrisy, spiritual tattletales, go to the Pharisees, and report Jesus essentially as, a, as an enemy to their agenda? How? How does that happen? Here's the answer. Because we, friends, are in the midst of a spiritual battle. You must never forget this. Never, ever forget. There is a spiritual warfare taking place. And there's only two sides. There's the kingdom of light, as Paul says in Colossians 1, and the kingdom of darkness. We must never forget that Paul said that Satan, in 2 Corinthians 4.4, is the God of this world. We must never forget that the Apostle John said in 1 John 5.19 that the whole world, talking about the worldly systems, talking about the worldly governments, the, the worldly religions, he says the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. That's Satan. They might not know it. They might not realize it, but there is a spiritual force of darkness that is at work in the world against and opposing the kingdom of Christ. It was true 2,000 years ago, and guess what? It's true right now. There are spiritual forces of evil opposing the kingdom of Christ. But Jesus promises. Remember, Jesus said, the gates of Hades will not stand against the church. Jesus is pushing forward his agenda of the kingdom over and against the spiritual forces of evil. But we must never forget, Paul says, Ephesians 6.12, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Paul even says this. Let's make it more personal, all right? The unbeliever, the individual unbeliever, is under the dominion of Satan. He says that there is a 
the, the prince of the power of the air, is at work now in the sons of disobedience. So what this means is this. What this means is this. This is really important. When you encounter somebody, whoever it is, there's no neutral ground in their heart. They're either with Christ or they're against Christ. They're either with the kingdom of God or they're with the kingdom of Satan. That's just how it is. There, there's no neutral ground. And what you see, now Satan isn't mentioned here in this text. There's no mention of Satan. But you can be sure that Satan is at work here. Satan is at work in this opposition to the kingdom of Christ. And we need to know how Satan works how do the opposing forces work? When I was in the Marine Corps, one of the things that we really emphasized a lot is something called reconnaissance. That before you executed and planned a mission, you needed to know your enemy. You needed to do some recon. You needed to know how many there were, who they were, where they were, their tactics, all those things. The same is true in the Christian life. Did you know that? That God says that you are to know and understand what your enemy is is like, that you need, Paul says in Ephesians 6, 11, that you need to be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Do you know the schemes of the devil? What are the schemes of the devil? Let me give you 2 Corinthians 2, 11. Jot down that verse. 2 Corinthians 2, 11. Paul says, we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. Do you know how Satan operates? What are his designs? Here's why I want to emphasize this. Here's why it's important to emphasize this. I think that the word of God is going forth in our nation in an unusual way. I even think the word of God is going forth here at Capitol in an unusual way. It's the word of God doing the work. The gospel is going forth. But we can expect as the word of God goes forth, opposition to confront us. So are you ready? Are you ready? The Christian life is not Reese's buttercups. It, it's, or peanut butter cups, I should say. The, the, Christ, the Christian life, when you join up for the, for the Christian life, it's game on. It's warfare. That's why Paul tells Timothy, he says, uh, suffer as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. You're in the Lord's army. Did you sing that song as a kid? You are in the Lord's army now. You don't get the opportunity to be a spectator in the kingdom of God. You have to put on battle gear. The church is a barracks in retraining you for ministry. So how does your enemy operate? You ready for this? Let's look. First, let me give you one word, prevention. The enemy will do whatever it can to prevent the truth from going forth. Prevention. Look at verse 47. So the chief priest and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. Now, what John is describing is a gathering of the official ruling council of the Jews called the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was made up of primarily two groups, the Sadducees and the Pharisees. Do you remember the difference between the Sadducees and the Pharisees? The Pharisees believed in a resurrection from the dead. The Sadducees 
did not. The Sadducees were more upper class. They were uh, the high priest and the, the, the upper echelon of the priestly class. The Pharisees were more the blue-collar people's teachers. And um, they would sometimes have internal, fraternal debates amongst one another, but here they are unified against Jesus. So these two groups come together, and we're told what the agenda item is at the top of the piece of paper. Why did they gather together? John says, this, this is the agenda. This is why we're meeting. As word goes out, why, are we, why is the Sanhedrin meeting? This is it. What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. So the, the agenda meeting is, we need to do something about this man, Jesus Christ, because he is doing these miracles that you cannot debate. In other words, there is a truth reality. Think about this. This is truth. Jesus has done this miracle. What are we to do about it? This truth demanded a response. Now, notice what their response is not. Not once does anybody say, hold up, wait a second. Should maybe we take a step back and think about maybe we should do something if this is really true? If he really has raised someone from the dead, which he has, should we maybe take a step back and, and, and consider the fact that this man could indeed be the Messiah? Does anybody do that? No, they do not. The whole agenda is the opposition and prevention of the truth going out. And the reason for this is very simple. And Jesus told us four chapters earlier, they are part of Satan's kingdom. This is what Jesus said in John 8, 44, talking to the religious leaders. He said, you are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not, listen, does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. Satan always opposes the truth. He hates the truth. He can't stand the truth being proclaimed. He always must oppose the truth. So one of the ways that you can understand the difference between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan, the kingdom of light and the kingdom of darkness, is its love or hostility to the truth. The truth is the dividing line. Those who are in the church, one of the ways that I know if you're a genuine Christian is that you love the truth. You love it. You love it. In the American church today, there's so many people that have just signed up because they said, you know, I want something better for my family out of the church. Okay, but that doesn't make you a Christian. The mark of the Christian is that you love the truth. You breathe the truth. You eat the truth. Remember what Jesus says, that man cannot live on bread alone, but on what? The very word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So whenever you have the true church, you have this love for the truth. This is 2 John 1. John says, I'm writing to whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also all who know the truth because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. 
He says in 3 John 4, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Paul says in 1 Timothy 3.15 that the church is the pillar and buttress of the truth. Christians always love the truth. And they walk in the truth. But Satan opposes the truth. Always does. Important application. We're commanded to the task of apologetics, are we not? Yes, we are. That's First Peter 3.15. In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. We are called to know the truth and to be able to defend the truth. But we must expect that there will be a response to when you proclaim the truth. That's why so many people are afraid of evangelism. Legitimately. Legitimately. Because when you present the truth, there is a legitimate possibility that that truth will be rejected. And not just rejected, but opposed. This is the spiritual world that you exist in. Let me give you a principle. Let me give you a principle to help you understand. The more effective you are in advancing the truth, the more you will be opposed by Satan. Do you understand this? It's true of churches and it's true of individuals. The more, and I'm warning you, the more effective you are in proclaiming Bible, the more Satan puts a bullseye on your back. So we can expect great opposition, great opposition, because Satan hates the truth. Look, this council's going, what must we do? We, we, we can't, we have to prevent word of getting out of, the, of this resurrection of Lazarus. We have to squelch the truth. We have to oppose it. And so if you are a truth person, raise your hand if you're a truth person. Should be all of us. You will be opposed. You will be opposed. Expect it. Satan's gonna try to prevent you from spreading the truth. Now, why is this? Why do people do Satan's bidding? Why are they so easily manipulated by Satan in order to oppose the truth? We're told in the next verse, protection. They want to protect their dark territories that they're over. They have their little thiefdoms, and they want to protect them. Look at verse 48. If we let him go on like this, if we let Jesus go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. So they're thinking pragmatically. By the way, when you start handling spiritual issues, and the way that you handle them is with prag- pragmatism, you are in big trouble. They say, if he goes on like this, there's going to be a big problem. And here's their reasoning. Here's their rationale. They think, okay, people are going to make him king. They're going to crown him the Messiah, and they're going to install him as the national leader of Israel, and that's going to create big problems with Rome. 
And here's what will happen. Caesar will send his armies, and they say this. Look, what will we lose? We will lose our place. The Greek word there is topos. It's where we get our English word topography. We're talking about a, a ge- geographical location. What geographical location do you think they're talking about? The temple, Mount Moriah. Luke uses that same word, topos, in Acts chapter 6 over and over to refer to the temple. He's talking about the temple. He's saying, we're going to lose our temple if Jesus keeps on like this, and we're going to lose our nation. Of course, the nation was a proxy nation underneath Rome. They were you know, under the Roman uh, procurators, Pilate and so forth, but they still had their semblance of a nation. So they're saying if, if things keep going the way that they're going, we're going to lose these things. Again, they're not interested in the truth. What motivates them is protecting their status. They are interested in preserving their wealth, power, their position, the nation. And so often, if you read the Acts of the Apostles especially, so often, this is why Christianity is opposed. When the gospel starts going forth, and you, you, you see this, lives are changed. People that were living dark lives in sin, their life is changed. And what happens is they leave that world of sin, death, and darkness, and they come into the church, into the kingdom of light. And when they do that, they leave their sinful practices behind. How do you think the drug dealer feels about that? Not too happy. So you see as as the apostles are going forth, for example, Paul in Philippi, there was a demon-possessed girl following him around, and it annoyed Paul. You remember this? She had followed him around for like three days, And then all of a sudden, Paul just turned around, and he rebuked the demon and basically did an exorcism and said, come out of her. Do you remember how the the, the guys who were controlling that girl responded? They took Paul to the Agora, the, the marketplace. They arrested him. Then they beat him and Silas with rods, and then they threw him into prison. And that's when the Philippian jailer are saved and so on and so forth. They reacted very negatively, you could say, right? Wouldn't you say that's a negative response? I would. Do you remember in Ephesus, uh, Acts chapter 19, all these people are getting saved in Asia. And Luke records this, Acts 19, 23, about that time there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. That's Christianity. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These craftsmen he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods." So he says, we must oppose Christianity because its success is taking away our livelihoods, our dark fortunes. If there will be, and I pray that there will be, 
another revival and reformation again in America. Do not think that there will not be great opposition from the abortion mills, from the LBGTQ lobby, from Washington, from all sorts of places, because there are so many people's paycheck who depend on sin and darkness. The opposition will happen because people want to conserve their little dark territories. Here's what's, I think, really fascinating about all of this with the, the reaction of the Sanhedrin. By their rejection of the truth and their rejection of Jesus, these leaders brought the very judgment to Israel and the temple and the nation that they wanted to prevent. You know the history. Do y'all know the history? History lesson? Okay, here's the history lesson. 70 AD, Titus, general, later became emperor, levels Jerusalem, levels the temple, and the nation of Israel was essentially wiped off the face of the earth, ceased to exist. It, it was the, Jesus says, greatest tribulation that will ever happen. Uh, Grace Ann and I went to Israel this past summer, and we went on top of Masada. Masada had been a vacation palace for Herod the Great, literally built a fortress on top of a mountain. He would go there for a vacation, overlooks the Dead Sea, absolutely beautiful. And some Jews went up to Masada, took it over, and that became their Alamo. But the Romans followed them from Jerusalem all the way to Masada. Do you think the Romans let the Jews stay up there and have their little party? They built a siege ramp. It took them years. And they built it and built it and built it. They built it all the way up to the, the top of this mountain. I mean, I just, when I was there, Grace Ann, I just stood. I just looked at this ramp. I, it's just breathtaking to think about the ingenuity and the level of dedication that the Romans had to destroy the Jews. And as they finished the siege ramp, the Jews knew that the Romans would be ruthless. And so they committed mass suicide. He said, there's no way that we're going to subject ourselves to, to what the Romans are going to do. Here's what's interesting. This was all prophesied. The prophet Daniel prophesied that this very thing would happen. Daniel chapter 9, 26, Daniel says, And the people of the prince, those are the Jews, the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. As a result of their actions, God will bring judgment on the city of Jerusalem and the temple. Jesus prophesied it in the Olivet Discourse, Matthew 24, 17. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down and take what is in his house, and let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, Pray that your flight may not be in winter or on a Sabbath, for then there will be great tribulation, such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now, no, and never will be. So by their protecting what they thought, they were actually bringing about 
the judgment of God. Here's the lesson. You cannot stand against the plans of Almighty God. It's an important lesson also for those that are Christians. Do you think that you can break God's law and try to get ahead and God will not see? Do you think that you can protect a little area of sin in your life and think that God will not ultimately smash it? The writer of Hebrews says that God disciplines those he loves. You ain't getting away with nothing. God sees. God's plan stands. History is his. That's one thing that you understand learning or reading the Bible, is that all of history is God's. All of history. It's like all these nations are being evil. Israel's being evil. What does God do? I appoint Nebuchadnezzar. Raise him up, and he will sweep through. He raises up kings, raises up nations, puts down nations. He is sovereign. You cannot prevent the plan of Almighty God. But they plot anyway. That's what they do next. So there's a desire to prevent the truth. There's a desire to protect their little thiefdoms. And then there's the plotting, the evil plotting of those in the kingdom of darkness. They plot, they plot, they plot. We gather together to worship. They gather gather together to plot against the kingdom. Verse 49. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. Let me give you a a short bio sketch on Caiaphas. Caiaphas is his last name, his surname. His first name is Joseph. He was appointed high priest by the Roman curator Valerius Gratus in AD 18, and he held this position under Pontius Pilate as well. So he was the high priest when Jesus was crucified. He was a Sadducee. He married into a very powerful family. He married the daughter of Annas, who was the high priest before him. We know by reading the Gospels in terms of his personality, listen, he's confident, he's dogmatic, he's assertive, He's boorish. You know nothing at all, right? And get this, he's a dramatist. What's a dramatist? Somebody who pretends. Do you remember the trial of Jesus? When when Caiaphas asked Jesus, he says, are you the Messiah? And Jesus says, you will see the Son of Man coming in glory. Do you remember what Caiaphas does? He rips his robes and he says, blasphemy, It was all a fake. He wanted Jesus to say something like that so that they could crucify him. He wasn't concerned about the honor of God. He just wanted Jesus out of the way. So he's a master manipulator, and and he kind of reigns over this council. He tells them, you know nothing at all. Ever met somebody who talks like that? Obviously, hadn't read Dale Carnegie's How to Win Win Friends and Influence People, right? You know nothing at all. He says, you don't understand that it is better. Now, look at this. For you. Who's he talking about? For you. The Sanhedrin. He says, you don't understand that it's better for you, the elites. He said, that one man should die 
rather than the whole nation. So what Caiaphas proposes is the persecution of the one righteous man for the advantage of the criminal elite. Solomon says in Proverbs 17, 15, he says, He who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous are both alike an abomination to the Lord. So he is plotting evil against God, against the Messiah. Now here's what's always so interesting when you study the Bible, is that God handles sin sinlessly. God uses evil things to bring about his purposes. God uses even evil for good. Proverbs 19.21 says, many, many thoughts are in a man's heart, but it is the counsel of Yahweh that will stand. And talking about the crucifixion, this is what Peter and John say in Acts 4.27. They say, for truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples, peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and whatever your hand had predestined to take place. Remember Joseph with his brothers. He said, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. So Caiaphas is making this evil statement, but yet even in this evil statement, God is at work. Look at verse 51. This is really fascinating. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also, pay attention to this verbiage, to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So what John tells us is that in Caiaphas's statement, there is a double meaning. There's a prophetic meaning that he spoke prophetically by the Holy Spirit. Now, what Caiaphas means when he says this, this is what's interesting, is something different than what God means. What Caiaphas means is we just need to sacrifice this guy so that the, Rome, the Romans don't take our nation. That's what Caiaphas means. What does God mean in this statement? Well, God's talking about substitutionary atonement. This is one of the clearest statements of substitutionary atonement. That is the meaning of the cross. Jesus came, and he came to die on a cross as a sin substitute for his people. The meaning of the cross is not just a, a moral example. It is to die in the place of sinners. Peter says in 1 Peter 2.24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. He says, by his wounds, you have been healed. 1 Peter 3.18, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Then Isaiah prophesied, Isaiah 53, 5, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. God cannot merely simply forgive sin because God is just. God, just, God doesn't operate with balance scales and say, well, your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds, therefore you're in. God is a just God and he must punish sin every single sin. 
And therefore, the only way for sinners to go to heaven is for there to be a sin substitute. And that is the meaning of the cross. Is Jesus Christ dying in your place for your sins? Now look at how the Holy Spirit through Caiaphas explains the atonement. This is really fascinating. He says that he will die for the nation. And not for the nation only, but what? To gather the people who are scattered abroad. Now how did Caiaphas mean the word nation? He was talking about the political entity of Israel, wasn't he? How does God mean the word nation? Jesus didn't die to redeem nations. He died to redeem people. He's talking about ethnic Jews. And not just ethnic Jews, but who? The people, the children of God who are scattered abroad. Who's that? The Gentiles. There's almost an exact correlation to this in John chapter 10. If you turn over to John chapter 10, look at this. The sheepfold in John chapter 10 represents the nation of Israel. Jesus, remember, came to the nation of Israel. Look at verse 4. When he has brought out all his own, those, that's the, the believers, the sheep that he calls out of Israel. He goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. Then look at verse 11. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Remember, Caiaphas says he will be sacrificed for the nation. It's, it's the, the children of, of Israel that Christ calls out in order to be redeemed. Then look at verse 16. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. They're not of Israel, but they're still sheep. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be, look at this, one flock, one shepherd. Look what John says in verse 52. He says, not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. Now, what we've just seen here in John chapter 10, turn back to John 11, and here in John 11, is sometimes called the doctrine of particular redemption, that Christ died to save a particular people. It's specific Jews and specific Gentiles, and that the atonement Look at this, actually secures their salvation in future history. The the way I see that is if you look at verse 52, look what the atonement accomplishes. Doesn't just make salvation a possibility. Look what it does. To gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. The atonement is the the blood, is the power that God uses to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad, the Gentiles. So the atonement is not just a potential atonement. When Christ died on the cross, he secured with certainty the salvation of everyone who would ever believe in him. Think about that for a second that your name was actually written on his hands if you're in Christ. And when he died and said, it is finished, your salvation was certain. Now, it didn't mean that you were born a Christian. The Holy Spirit still applies that 
salvation that Christ accomplished for you in space and time. But what it meant is, is that your salvation was certain the day that Jesus died. Remember what Paul said, I've been crucified with Christ. He didn't mean that then. He meant that when Christ was crucified. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. So the atonement actually accomplishes salvation. That's the point I'm making. Isn't that marvelous? Remember the the saying, Jesus saves. Jesus saves. He doesn't just make salvation possible. He makes it certain. And because of this salvation, what Jesus does is he brings into one both the Jew and the Gentile. Did you see that? Again, that's verse 52, to gather into one the children of God. So he describes the group as a family, children, right? That he brings together Jews and Gentiles. They're all children of God, and they all become part of one family, or as Paul says in Ephesians 4, one body, that we become one entity, one group, so that now it doesn't matter whether you're born a Jew or a Gentile. What matters is, is that you put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what matters. Paul says, Ephesians 2.14, jot these verses down. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, basically all the Jewish customs, the sacrifices, circumcision, all of that, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God, look at this, in one body through the, co- through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And then Paul says, Galatians 3.28, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So all of this, remarkably, is in Caiaphas's prophecy, that he has prophesied the particular atonement, and he's prophesied what the atonement will accomplish. You know, if God can use Balaam's donkey, and God can use Caiaphas, he can really use anyone, can't he? He really can. So he speaks this, this truth, even though he is plotting against the Lord. Now, fourth thing that we see from the world in its opposition to the kingdom, look at verse 53. Persecution. Persecution. The plotting at some point stops and the persecution begins. It's been this way for 2,000 years. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. So when, when he says that, that's the official ruling of the synagogue. They made plans as the official ruling body of Israel to put their Messiah to death. So these evil motives are turned into evil plans. Think about this plan for a second that they've concocted, that they have really devised a plan to put to death the Lord of glory. That's their plan. Okay, verse 54. Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness. So this area is north of Jerusalem, about 14 miles. Uh, 
it, this town, Ephraim, nobody knows where it is. Uh, it's, it hasn't been excavated. It's, it's off the map. We don't know exactly where it is, but we assume it was somewhere 14, 16 miles north of Israel toward the Jordan River, essentially. And he goes there to hide out. He goes there to stay with his disciples. Uh, Ephraim, just, you might be curious, it means fruitlessness. And think about that in terms of the symbolism of Israel's success in carrying out God's mission. Israel had been fruitless in carrying out the mission of God, but Christ as a representative, representative of Israel will ultimately fulfill what Israel as a nation has failed to accomplish. So Jesus stays there for several days, verse 55. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem, up in elevation, right? So they might be coming from the north, they might be coming from the south, they might be coming from the west, but they're all going up to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. There were these purification baths all outside the temple. And before you could go into the temple, it, they're basically big hot tubs. And they had steps going one, down one side, and they had a banister in the middle. And you would go down one side, kind of make a U-turn, and go up the other side. So that's what they're doing. These purification baths outside the temple, they all had to be purified before they could go into the temple. It was these purification baths that on the day of Pentecost, when so many thousands believed, you remember Peter said, now you should be baptized. They were baptized in these same purification baths. So they're going up to Jerusalem. They want to get there early because thousands of Jews are there. They want to get to the clean water in the purification baths before the rest of them arrive. Okay, that's a joke. I don't know. But they're they're going there for the purification baths. And it says, verse 56, here's what they're interested in. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, what do you think? That he will come to the feast at all? So they had heard about Jesus's miracle with Lazarus, but there's great speculation. Will he come to the feast or will he not? Everybody is interested in Jesus, despite the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Sanhedrin's desires. They're interested in seeing Jesus. Now, verse 57. Now, the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should not he should let them know so that they might arrest him. So an official order had gone out that if anybody knew where Jesus was, to let them know because they were going to arrest Jesus. They are moving forward with their plan that he might be sacrificed for the nation. They are moving forward to persecute Jesus. And of course, Jesus is in Ephraim. Think about this. He knows that this plan is in place. Why does he come back? Why does he come back? For the atonement, right? To fulfill it. He knows. And then you read John 18, John 19. It looks like the forces of evil win, doesn't it? Their plan works perfectly. We get it. What are we going to do? Let's get one of his disciples. Let's pay him off to betray him. Then we'll arrest Jesus. We'll have these charges that he's an insurrectionist, and we'll get him crucified. I mean, you read the Gospels. They carry it out 
perfectly. Does it ever seem like the forces of darkness are winning? Absolutely. They crucify him. Soldier puts the spear in his side. Blood and water come out. He's dead. Take him off the cross and put him in the tomb. Here's the thing. Can you stop the truth? Can you stop the living God? No, you cannot. Let's put some soldiers by the tomb. Make sure the disciples don't make up some story. How did that go? He arose from the dead. Let's put Peter and John in prison. That'll show them what happens. Door opens. They're out. They're in the temple again? You can't stop the truth. Okay, so let's kill James. Let's take him out. Does that stop the truth? No. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. It just keeps going. You can't stop Christ from building his church. And for 2,000 years, Satan and the forces of darkness have tried. But guess what? I've read the end of the story. And Jesus wins. I mean, Revelation, Revelation 20. There's all these guys that have had their heads cut off for Christ. Jesus is like, you know what? You're going to be vindicated. I'm coming back on a white horse. You will be vindicated. The forces of darkness, they try. Bless their hearts. But Christ will prevail. I, I, I just want to close. Read Psalm 2. Turn to Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Look at this. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten of you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. You be wise. You be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and would rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Take refuge in the Lord. Don't be on the wrong side of this. Don't be on the wrong side. Kiss the sun. Come to Christ. I'm not promising you a rose garden. It will be difficult, but you will be on the right side.
and when Christ comes back, you will be vindicated. Heavenly Father, Lord, we look to you, the author and perfecter of our faith. And we declare, Lord, that we are your people and you are our God. Thank you, Lord, for your conquering of death, your conquering of hell, your conquering of Satan, your conquering of the forces of darkness. And thank you, Lord, that our victory is assured. In Christ's name, amen. Thanks for listening. For more sermons, information, and events, check out our website at capitalcommunitychurch.com.